you would this morning, let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I think we're 16 weeks into the book of Galatians, and I was telling uh, the folks on Wednesday night, you know, it's coming that time of year where most of our summer saints have headed back south, and uh, Donna left last week, but before she left, she came up to me and she said, Pastor, I'm disappointed in you. And I said, why? What did I do? Because she said, I just knew that when I got here and you started Galatians, you were at least going to be done by the time I left. And so, but it didn't happen. But um, as we've seen in the book of Galatians, the theme is our liberty in Christ. And of course, the theme verse being chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And as I open every week just to give you some context, the Apostle Paul is writing to these Galatian believers that he's helped lead to the Lord, he's helped plant these churches, and he's upset with them because they have allowed false teachers to come in, these Judaizers, and they have added works to the gospel of grace. Uh, these Judaizers, they said, yes, Jesus is the only way, uh, but we're the only way to Jesus. And I, I was able to use that several times with the LDS at the fair because it's just so reminiscent. It's, you know, Jesus is a footnote to their system. He's nothing more than a parenthesis to please their critics. At the end of the day, it's all about the rules. Uh, for the Judaizers, it was you had to become an Old Testament Jew. You had to fulfill the law. And, and for the Gentile male converts, they even had to be circumcised or they couldn't even be saved. And we've seen over the first four chapters how the Apostle Paul uh, really, I mean, just methodically destroyed the argument of the Judaizers that salvation has never been and can never be by the works of the law. The law only condemns us. And that's what I did over a hundred times I did this at the fair. And I asked folks if they thought... I mean, people just could not believe. They were just so shocked that I would be so ignorant to think there's no such thing as a good person. And what I found is it wasn't so much that they wanted to defend the fact that there are good people in the world. They wanted to defend the fact that they thought they were a good person. Listen, I literally had a woman waiting in line. I was talking to a man for about 30 minutes. She was waiting in line, and, and finally, she finally just asked the person in front of me if he would hurry up and get through because she wanted to talk to me. And the reason was she just could not wait to tell me what a good person that she is. And her reasoning was that the day before, she had babysitted for a person and had not even charged him. And I said, really, ma'am, that is such a good thing to do. But let me ask you this. Do you think everybody does bad things in their life? And she said, well, I think people make mistakes. I said, ma'am, a mistake is when you spill the glass of tea. I said, I'm talking about bad things. Let me ask you this. you know the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. What do you call somebody that tells a lie? A liar. I said, you think liars are good people? And uh, after we got done talking, as she's walking away, she said, I'm still a good person. I said, liars are still not good people. <laughs> What I found amazing is, and I told y'all that I had learned a few things over the years. 
But it, what I found, it is amazing that people will go to great lengths to promote the good things they've done. But they'll also go to great lengths to belittle the bad things they've done. I even had one person tell me that they were offended by the table, that I should change it from there's no such thing as a good person to there's no such thing as a perfect person. But what they don't realize is, according to God's standard, a good person is a perfect person, and a perfect person is a good person. That's why the only good person that ever lived was Jesus Christ, because He's the only perfect person that ever lived, and He's the only one that never broke the law of God, and He's the only one that never did anything wrong. And so that's what the Judaizers taught, that you had to be justified by works, and Paul has spent four chapters destroying their arguments. But by the time you get to chapter 5, he really shifts gears. And for these last two chapters, chapter 5 and 6, he is going to be talking about the implications of what we believe about salvation. Because the cults and this carnal world and the works religions, they all have this carnal mindset that nobody would ever want to serve Christ if they could ever be secured by grace through faith in Christ. I had many people tell me yesterday, no, that's not true. You can't get something for free. I said, salvation's not free. It costs Christ everything. It costs us nothing. Isn't that beautiful? Now, there is a cost to be a Christian, but there's not a cost to become a Christian, not to us. And so, yes, it is free. And if it wasn't, we could never pay what it costs. That's that's why Christ had to come. If there was another way, then Christ died in vain. And so we, we even saw last week, you know, the implications of what we believe about salvation will affect everything about our life. Because as we said, belief determines behavior and doctrine determines direction. And the, Paul that, and the, the point that Paul is going to be making over these next two chapters is it's actually the born-again Christians who have been saved by the grace of God, by faith alone. They're the ones that are going to serve Christ with a zeal out of a heart that's been forgiven and a grateful heart that desires to serve God, it's the legalists that become burnout. They're the ones that gas out because they're operating in the power of the flesh and they have heaped burdens upon themselves that nobody has ever been able to bear. That's the point that he's making. And last week we looked specifically at our freedom in Christ in verses 13 through 15 and we learned Uh, that Christ has set us free from the penalty of sin. He is setting us free from the power of sin. And when we get to heaven, we will be set free from the very presence of sin. What a blessing. But we're also free, and I I didn't preach this. I, I just didn't feel led to get this deep into it. But we also find in that text that we're free to serve others out of a motivation of love, not intimidation, guilt, or manipulation. Look at the end of verse 13 before we actually get into the message this morning. Well, let me just read verse 13. It says, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. That's freedom. Only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And so we have freedom in Christ to love and serve one another. And this is a, I guess this could be another message for another day, but you need to get this. One of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself and your loved ones, is the gift of loving freely. The freedom to love freely. 
Because here's what happens so many times. If you have a man who's a very insecure person, he will usually try to get his wife to love him through means of intimidation and guilt and fear. But let me say this, the best he could ever get from his wife is compliance. Because he has not given her the gift of freely loving. Uh, women can do this too. If they, maybe they're insecure, they oftentimes will try to control through manipulation. But what you've done is you've robbed them of the gift to freely love. That's taking a risk. It really is. I mean, you have to be pretty secure to give somebody that kind of freedom because they may use that freedom to hurt you. But friend, I would rather have true love than force compliance any day of the week. I guess I should have preached that message. Maybe we'll get back to that. But that's one of the greatest gifts you can do. And, and you know, the, the shame of false religion is it takes away the opportunity for people to freely love God. It's all about the rules, manipulation, fear. Do these things for God to love you. The gospel says in Christ you're loved, now go do good works. And so in our text today... Paul again shifts gears, and he has been talking about uh, salvation or justification uh, throughout the whole book. Now he begins a discourse on sanctification and Christian growth. And it's awful hard to have a meaningful conversation about salvation if you never talk about sanctification. Now, sanctification is the natural outgrowth of the inward salvation. Very important, and I'll just say this in passing. But there's three types of sanctification. Sanctification simply means to be set apart. There's three types. The first one is positional sanctification. This takes place at the moment of salvation. We are positionally sanctified and set apart for Christ. That position never, ever changes throughout the course of your whole life. Positionally, I've never been more or less sanctified than the day that I got saved. Then the second kind is progressive sanctification. This is what Paul is going to be dealing with here in this text. That is the lifelong process by which God makes us more like Him and less like us. Then there's the third type, perfect sanctification. When we get our glorified bodies in heaven, we will be perfectly sanctified forever with the Lord. Uh, But we're talking about progressive sanctification this morning. Now, Uh, The greatest single defining verse in the Bible for this type of sanctification, in my opinion, is found in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If he begins the work of salvation in you, that good work of salvation, he's going to continue performing it until the day we get home. He's never going to stop working on us, and I'm thankful for that. He doesn't, God doesn't save us to leave us like He found us. He's not going to come in here and there be no change. And I would say that over a period of time, sanctification is one of the greatest indicators of a true Christian versus a legalist or a poser. An active relationship with Christ changes a person. That relationship grows and blossoms and That relationship is full of life. It produces fruit. But on the other hand, the legalist never changes because all they have is the rules. Their whole belief system, their whole religion is tied up in the rules. 
You see it in the way they live. You hear it in the way they talk in regular conversation. If it happens to be a preacher, it's all they ever preach about. Their whole religion goes no deeper than the rules. And since the rules never change, they never change because there's no active relationship there. Now, I would hope in your marriage, men, that you, you got to learn just a few things since you've been married. I see this with some of these wives shaking their head like they're not so sure. But, <laughs> but you do. You learn things because there's an active relationship. There's an active communication. You came into the relationship thinking that you knew about this much, and now hopefully you've, you know about this much. <laughs> if you learned anything. That it had, a relationship changes you. Rules never do. And so, let me say this, if you haven't changed anything in 20 years, it means you haven't learned anything in 20 years. It, if, let me say this, it may be that if nothing in your life has changed, it's because you don't really know the one that changes us. The first natural thing to do when talking about sanctification is to talk about the struggle against sin. And that's exactly what Paul does here. The next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the struggle against sin. And so with that in mind, let's read our text for this morning, uh, chapter 5 and verse 16. It says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love to us. Thank you for the salvation that's so richly offered to us in Christ. And God, I pray, maybe there's one here at the sound of my voice, whether in this room or maybe listening by live stream that's not saved. They don't know you in the pardon of their sin. Maybe they've been religiously trained, but they don't know you. And I pray that you would save them today through the power of your Spirit. Lord, enter me as sin and self and fill me with your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would just be glorified and magnified, that the name of Christ would be uplifted and we would be changed. We'll thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So we're going to be preaching, I think it's going to be a two-part series on the struggle is real. Talking about the struggle against sin. I know this much to be true. If you're saved in here this morning and you're breathing, you're struggling with sin. You're struggling with temptation. Doesn't mean you're always defeated by it. Doesn't mean you can't have victory over it. But it does mean there is a battle there. Uh, This body has not been redeemed. This body is sinful. This body is Adamic in nature. And so there is a battle there. And just to show you how my mind works, when I started studying for this message, I really thought that I was going to get through the end of the chapter. And then I I thought, well, you know what? I think I can get to verse uh, maybe 22. And then I realized, no, we just need to keep it 18 this morning. By the time I'm done, you'll probably be glad about that. But I think this is so, it's so important because it's something that we all deal with. Sometimes you might get on a subject and as a pastor I think, well, you know, maybe only half the church might be dealing with that. No, this is, this is across the board uh, this morning, myself included. And so we're looking at the struggle is real. The struggle 
uh, against sin. Last week we talked about the fact that God is, present tense, saving us from the power of sin, and we're going to elaborate more on that uh, today and next week. So the question that I really want to wrestle with today, what are some things that we as believers need to know that will help us win against sin? Well, number one, if we're going to win the struggle against sin, uh, we're going to have to know that our salvation is real. We're going to have to be secure in our salvation. Uh, Look at verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. Now, Spirit is with a capital S. We know that means the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Uh, We are commanded to walk in the Spirit. And we can't, but here's the thing, we can't walk in the Spirit if we don't possess the Spirit. Now understand that all born-again Christians, every single Christian possesses the Holy Spirit of God, and not a single lost person does. There's no Christian without the Spirit, no matter what some of the charismatics say. Uh, There's no Christian that doesn't have the Spirit, and there's no non-believer that has the Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 says, For by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, are we all baptized into one body, talking about the body of Christ. Romans 8 and verse 9 says uh, that if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. Ephesians 4.30 commands us, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby we are sealed under the day of redemption. And so, uh, but you can't walk in the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. But I'll say this, you also can't walk in the Spirit if you aren't assured that you have the Spirit. There's people, I believe, that are saved, but sometimes they lack assurance of that salvation. They're so worried about certain things that they'll never be strong in their faith. They'll never really be uh, effective for Christ. But if you're going to fight against sin, You must have the right foundation to stand on, and that is your salvation in Christ. You'll never be able to stand against anything if you're not standing on anything. And I would say that so many young or immature Christians, they go back and forth between uh, believing that they're saved and then doubting they're saved. Believing they're saved and doubting they're saved. I've seen it over and over and over again. And, And so many people agonize Um, over their initial sincerity. You know, I just don't know if I prayed the right prayer. I don't know if I said the right things. I don't know if I did the right thing. I don't know why I don't maybe uh, feel as much peace right now in this moment that I did in that moment. Let me say this. Stop focusing on what you did or didn't do once upon a time because I can go ahead and uh, just clear the record for you. Whatever you did wasn't good enough. It wasn't sincere enough. It wasn't right enough. That's never been the issue. That's never been the issue. It's all about what Christ did. And the question is, is what He did good enough? We need to look at Christ and His finished work on the cross, and the question we should be asking is, did Jesus accomplish my salvation through His death, burial, and resurrection or not? That's the question. Is Jesus enough to save me even at my worst? If it's yes, you can actually be secure in your salvation. If not... You're going to struggle with that thing forever. I can't tell you how many times, especially in the environment that I was discipled in and later uh, to some extent pastored in, I can't tell you how many people that came to me. I'm talking about good Christian people with a good testimony 
that clearly love God and they come to me with tears in their eyes and they say, I just don't feel saved. And a lot of, a lot of preachers would have just said, well, we don't need to take a chance on this. Just repeat this prayer and we'll stand you up in front of church and baptize you for the fi- fifth, sixth, or seventh time. That's crazy. I just ask them a few questions. Let me ask you this. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you believe He was born a virgin? Absolutely. And I can see the joy welling up in their heart even as I'm asking these questions. Do you believe that He was fully God and fully man? Yeah. Do you believe He lived a sinless life? Yeah. And then I get to the cross. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin, that His blood was sufficient to save us from sin? Oh, yeah, I do. And do you believe that He rose from the dead three days later? Yes, I do. Do you love Him? Yeah, I do. I said, I think you just answer your own question. You don't need to say a prayer. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to be walked down the aisle again. You just need to have faith in what you already know to be true. You just need to trust in Him and His finished work. He is enough. Jesus is enough. He's not only enough to save us, He's enough to keep us saved. We need to ask, is Jesus enough to keep me saved through His work as a priest and an advocate? (laughs) I often ask those that think that they can lose their salvation. I say, well, let me ask you this. If, If you can lose your salvation... What does Christ actually accomplish as our priest and our advocate? Because if He can't keep us saved as our priest and our advocate, He is a failure. Poor Jesus, what would He do without us? He can keep us saved, folks. You can have assurance in Christ. Uh, 1 John 5 and verse 13, These things have I written that you may know that you have eternal life. I love what Robert Murray McShane said, talking about the security of our salvation. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If we could hear His high priestly prayer for us, we would never fear or doubt our salvation again. If you are, in fact, born again. So is Jesus enough? We need to answer that question with an emphatic yes. And if we can never do that, we will never be victorious over the struggle against sin. question is, will He be enough tomorrow? What about the next day or next week or next month or next year? Stop looking to yourself and your sincerity and your abilities and look to Christ and His great salvation. I guarantee you there's been plenty of times in my life where I wasn't enough. In fact, there hadn't been a single time where I was enough. But there's not been one single time where He wasn't enough. His grace is greater than our sin. His power is greater than our problems. And His love is greater than our loss and our lack. If you're not secure in these things, you will never win in the struggle against sin. If you're not convinced that Christ has set you free from the penalty of sin, you will never get victory over the power of sin. You must be secure in your salvation if you're going to win and the struggle against sin. It's just that simple, folks. If you never get past that, you'll never even taste the victorious, abundant life in Jesus Christ. Without that, you won't... Listen, without that assurance, you won't have any more peace than the cults do. You won't have any more joy than the cults do. But if you ever get that settled, friend, what a victory. 
What a peace, what a joy that I am saved. I'm born again. I'm loved and accepted by God. I have a home in heaven. What a victory to go to bed at night and know that. You, you just got to get secure about that. But the second thing, if we're going to win in the struggle against sin, we're going to have to stay focused on the Lord. I love this. Look at verse 16 again. He said, This I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, I find this really interesting. Like, this is something we need to highlight, circle, underline, squiggly line. Like, you need to get this. Um, usually, in the past, when I've, when I've heard preachers and I've been taught about fighting against sin or resisting sin or anything of that nature, it always focuses on the sin itself. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't think this. Don't say that. But that's not what Paul does here. Now, he does get to the sin. He's got no problem cataloging sin, and God doesn't either. But that's not what he starts with. That's not his initial focus. What, What I find very interesting is Paul does not say, Don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, and then you will be able to walk in the Spirit. It's the exact opposite. Um, Years ago, I read a book, a few years back, I read a book by Heath Lambert entitled Finally Free, Fighting for Purity with the Power of God's Grace. And it was a book about breaking the addiction of pornography. I was counseling a man in our church who was really struggling with that, and I just really wanted to be more equipped to do that, to try to help counsel him. And in the very introduction of this book, by the way, that's a great book. I mean, anybody struggling with that? I mean, look, we got a pretty full house this morning. Very possible. Listen, it can happen. And uh, but that's a great book for that. But but he made a statement in in the introduction that I've never forgotten. It's always stuck with me. And he said, "This is a book about breaking the addiction of pornography." He said, "But I'm not going to talk about pornography." Like what? He said, "He said I'm going to repeat." This is a book about breaking the addiction of pornography, but I'm not going to talk about pornography. I'm going to talk about the amazing grace of God. And his point was that there's plenty of books out there about the damage that pornography does to the mind and to society and all the stats and all. Those are good things to know. But he said the problem is the more that I talk about pornography, the more the reader is going to think about pornography. He said, but if I talk about God's grace and I just make much of Christ and He becomes bigger than the problem, they'll be set free. And I thought, wow, what a thought. And I realized that is absolutely true, is it not? And I mean, even standing here, the moment that I tell you not to think about something, guess what you're going to do? Don't, whatever you do, don't think about a pink alligator right now. Don't, whatever you do in your mind, do not, absolutely, do not think about a pink alligator. And what are you all doing right now? And especially when it comes to the thought of pornography, guess what they're thinking about? They're probably thinking about those same images, even reading a book trying to get rid of those images in their head. And, and so we can, if we're not careful, we'll focus so much on the sin that the sin actually becomes the focal point and the sin becomes bigger than our Savior. 
We need to make much of Christ and His great salvation and His grace, not only to set us free from the penalty of sin, but of the power of sin. And, you know, I know people who struggle with the idea that if they mess up, they're unworthy to come to church, they're unworthy to pray, they're unworthy to be used by God. But, friend, that's when we need Him the most. When you're at your lowest, that's when you need to reach the highest. That's when we need prayer and the Word of God and the fellowship of the saints more than anything. We always need it, but we need it the most when the battle is on. And listen, I'm telling you as your pastor this morning, I'm telling you that if I waited till I got all of my ducks in a row before I prayed, before I went to church, before I read my Bible or even preached, I can tell you this pulpit would be empty every single service. I can't do it and you can't. And I can tell you I'm unworthy to be a son, much less a preacher of the gospel. And But I think about it like this. One of the battle cries of the Reformation, Martin Luther made this phrase uh, popular. And it's a Latin term. It's simul justus et peccator. And what that means is a sinner and yet righteous. Or righteous and or justified and yet a sinner. And what that means is that we're saved even though we're far from perfect. And if that wasn't the case, we could never be saved. We just couldn't. And so I would say, we have to, you know, if we're going to win at the struggle of sin, we've got to stay focused on the Lord and His grace and His great salvation and His plan and His purpose for your life. I'll say this before I move on to my last point, that if you're talking about a motivation for not wanting to sin, if you want to find a motivation for getting victory over sin and, and defeating sin in your own life, there's no greater motivation than a love for our Lord. Greater than a fear of judgment. Greater than a fear of condemnation. Greater than the fear of what people will think. The greatest motivation is a love for our Savior. And I want you to think about this. Next time you see, I want you to think about this. When you're, when you're convicted, when you feel these things, I really want you to feel them. I want you to feel the weight of them. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ died, listen, He didn't just die to be an example of how God hates sin. He died not only for our sin, but He died wearing our sin. The Bible says that He wore our sins in His body on the tree. Isaiah 53 tells us that God the Father laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. And it's as I shared with everyone that I talked to at the fair, and you know, some of them kind of nodded their head and some of them looked at me like a calf looking at a new gate. But the truth is that when Christ was on the cross, I'll translate for y'all later, I can see your confusion. When Christ died on the cross, He was wearing our sin. And when God the Father put His wrath on Jesus Christ, it wasn't just general wrath and it wasn't just general sin. It was my specific sin on that cross and God the Father punished Jesus for the things that I did. Think about that. Every lie that I've ever told, He wore that lie on that day. Every, everything that I've ever stolen, every cuss word that I've ever said, every, every lust that I've ever attempted to gratify, gratify, every evil thought that I had, He wore those things. 
And so every time that I sin, you know what I think? I'm just heaping more. I'm heaping more. I'm heaping more. I know it's an event that took place in the past, but it was based on my sin in the future. Think about that. That's another reason we can never lose our salvation. Because he died for our sin, past, present, and future. There was a lady, she had been saved about 30 years, and she was really having concerns about her salvation. You know, she was, uh, had her, I guess, some doubt-casting type preaching. I don't know, but uh, she went to talk to um, Henry Ironside and said, I'm just really doubting my salvation. And, uh, you know, I've, I've messed up since I've been saved. And he said, ma'am, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, how many of them at that time were yet future? She smiled and said, all of them. He said, there you go. But that's what I think. I think, man, I'm heaping more. I'm heaping more. Boy, just to think about breaking my Savior's heart and, and thinking about the sinless, spotless Lamb of God wearing my sin, like that embarrasses me. It brings me to shame, and I don't want to do that. That's the greatest motivation for a child of God, that we don't want to shame our Savior. We don't want to hurt our Savior. We don't want to defile Him with our sin. And if you don't care about that, you need to be saved. There's no other way to say that. And I know that's a very bold statement. I wouldn't say if it wasn't true. But if we don't care a thing about that, we don't even have the, we don't even have the Savior. That ought to bother us. God, help us. If we're ever going to win in the struggle of sin, we've got to stay focused on the Lord if we're ever to win the struggle of sin. And I'll say this, I'll move to my last point. I often think about Peter when he denied the Lord three times even cursing him, that he even knew him. And then as that cock crowed for the third time, just like Jesus said it would, he, he looked and saw Jesus was looking at him. Can you imagine the face of absolute like disappointment? And I just, I just cannot imagine. And yet I, I believe that's probably the same thing when we sin against our Savior. We need to take that seriously. And if we don't have a vision of that, we'll never, we'll never win in the struggle of sin. But then number three, and I'm done. If we're going to win in the struggle of sin, we're going to have to strike a balance between trusting and trying. Look again at verse 16 again. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. So we are commanded to walk in the Spirit. There's there's no doubt about that. That is a command. But we've got to be very careful and balanced as to how we interpret this. Because it also speaks of being led of the Spirit. And the byproduct of walking in the Spirit and being led of the Spirit is that we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, that we will be above reproach. We're not under the law there. And when it comes... Now, I've got to be very careful how I say this so you won't misunderstand what I mean. But when it comes to salvation, it is 100% trust in Christ. We cannot save ourselves. When it comes to sanctification, we also can't do that on our own. Um, and as we walk in the Spirit, we have to trust the Spirit. But we must find a balance here in how we interpret this. I believe there's a ditch on both sides of this issue. I believe these ditches are called quietism and pietism. Now, quietism 
is devotion without any dedication. You've probably heard that old saying, just let go and let God. Now, I think when it comes to trials and stuff, that's probably good advice. But when it comes to walking in the Spirit and obeying God, it's very bad advice. I'll just, hey, just, just Jesus, take the wheel. Just, just put it on cruise control and just let God take the ship and you're just along for the ride. I've got a French word for that. It's called garbage. That's just not true, folks. He expects us to put in some work, to put in some effort. Um, there is a combination of both trusting and trying. Uh, you've probably heard, you know, just be submissive to the Spirit. That's good advice. But being submissive to the Spirit, there, there's some work that goes along with that. Um, I've never heard the Holy Spirit say, just sit on the couch and do nothing. Um, we've got to be careful about that. But the other ditch is called pietism. Now, this is whereas quietism is devotion without dedication... Pietism is dedication without devotion. This is an attempt to live for the Lord in the power of the flesh. And we must find a balance between the two, both dedication and devotion. I would say dedication that spawns from devotion. And when it comes to walking in the Spirit, we must trust the Lord to bless our efforts. Now, I want to be very careful. We could never say that about salvation. That's heresy. Well, I hope God saves me. I hope He rewards me for, you know, for my efforts. That's, that's heresy. But when it comes to sanctification, I believe there's a lot of truth to that. Now, um, but this is really important too, and this is what you have to get. Even our trying and even our efforts are acts of dependency upon the Lord. Uh, I think about it like this. When we attempt to read and study our Bible, this is something we do but it's an act of dependency upon God. It's the same with prayer. Yeah, we're putting effort into it. I mean, prayer is a work. I mean, isn't it amazing? You can sit there and watch a movie for hours and never move. And it's like, and like when you're watching a good movie, it's almost like you have supernatural abilities. You can drink a 60-ounce Coke and not even have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but, I mean, when you try to pray, it just seems like your mind wanders and... You know, it's, it's because it goes against this fleshly nature. It is a work of prayer, but it is an act of dependency upon God. I think about uh, the same could be said with, you know, being faithful to church and, you know, being under the preaching of the Word of God. I would say the same with evangelism. Uh, evangelism is, a, is to confront this lost and dying world with the truth of the gospel, but we can't do that if we're not living a life of dependency upon the Lord. Dealing with some of those folks this week, getting so mad their hands were shaking, you better be dependent upon God. And I hear people all the time say, well, you know, I'm just too weak uh, to talk to somebody like that. I could never do that. I could never hand out a gospel tract. I-, I could never witness to my coworker. I'm just too weak. And my response to that is, no, you're not weak enough. You're not dependent enough. That's the problem. Um, I was listening to Paul Washer one time, and he was talking about how he was doing some street preaching. I think he may have been at a, a gay pride parade or something of that nature where the crowd was pretty lively. And uh, there was actually, I think, another Christian that was ministering there for another church. And he, he saw Paul Washer preaching. He actually wanted to go up and encourage him. He said, I don't, he said listen, I, I might come and hand out tracts, but he said, I'm just not brave enough to preach like this. I can't do what you're doing. He said, you're, a, he said, you're one bold man. Paul Washer said, no, I'm one terrified man. He said, what do you mean? How in the world can you do this if you're terrified? 
He said, because I fear Him more than I fear them. And that's really what it all comes down to. And so we can't... Listen, uh, I just... In the environment I grew up in, and this is really sad to say, but in, in the environment that I grew up in, that I was discipled in, I never saw anybody do any kind of outreach like what we did this week. It just didn't exist. I didn't see a pastor do it, preacher. I didn't even know we were supposed to do that kind of stuff. And I, I got exposed to some people about five years ago that did that, and I thought they were crazy. And then as I began to look at that, and I, I was studying through the book of Acts at the time, and I thought, why, why are we not doing this? Why am I not doing this? And so I began to do it. I th- I'll be honest, I think the first place I ever street preached was at the abortion clinic in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where it's not uncommon for them to have 40 abortions a day. Talk about cutting your teeth. Talk about swim or drown. I was terrified. I get scared even now. But it's gotten to the point where I've done it so much that I really, I just look forward to it now. I mean, it's, it's just become a second nature almost. And it's like anything else. The more you do it, the more comfortable uh, you become with it. But when it comes to our sanctification and our struggle against sin, it never ceases to amaze me when people come to me, and I'm not talking about anybody specifically, especially in this church, please don't think that, but just as a general rule in all the years I've been pastoring, it's amazing that when people come to me about how they are struggling in their faith, or they, man, I just don't have the joy of my salvation, or, uh, you know, I just don't feel the peace of God like I want to, when, when at the same time, they never read their Bible, their prayer life is like a drive through at McDonald's, and they don't even go to church half the time. I mean, listen, a lot of things I don't have an answer for. A lot of things I, don't, I probably wouldn't have good advice for, but in a case like that, it's, i got some suggestions, you know. I mean, it would, it would be like if somebody came to you and they never hardly ate anything. They, they just took a, a few sips of water every day, maybe a few crackers, just enough to stay alive, and they walked around complaining about how hungry they are. I just, preacher, I just stay hungry all the time. I don't know what my problem is. I'm just starving all the time. You know what you need to do? You need to eat something. You need to get around steak, potatoes, and uh, dessert, and pie, and you need to eat. The solution is simple. Uh, through the years, I've, I can only think of one time this has happened. I know other pastors have talked about this, but in my mind, I can only think of one family that did this. But they, they kind of got out of church, and they stopped coming very faithfully, and then eventually it seemed like they got out altogether, and I was just talking to them and asking them, you know, what the problem is. And, and they said, well, preacher, it's nothing against you. We just don't feel like we're being fed. <laughs> we just don't feel like we're being fed. And uh, this is back, I guess I had less of a filter then than I do now, maybe. But I said, well, I'm sure you could probably have a better pastor, but it's awful hard to get fed when you never come to dinner. But isn't that true? I mean, I know this is not deep, but it sure is true. And so, you know, these are things we need to think about. And the problem with Christians like that is they're not dependent enough. They want to live their life with a certain level of independence from God, and then they wonder why they don't have peace and joy in the Lord. They don't, they don't have victory over sin. Why is this happening? You're not dependent enough. And even though, yes, we need to do things, we need to be dedicated, but even the things we do are acts of dependence upon God. The sanctified life is a dependent life on Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. 
And through trusting the Lord and doing what we know to do, we can have victory over sin. I'm going to share this illustration and I'm done. This is the greatest illustration that I've ever come across concerning gaining victory over the flesh and over sin. Um, Especially like young Christians or maybe Christians that may not have matured, they deal with this and they feel like they're never going to get out of the pit that they're in. But I'm telling you, God can give you victory over things you never thought possible. And uh, about eight or 900 years ago, there was these two nobles, these two brothers, Lord Byron and his brother Crassus. And Crassus was his nickname because Crassus was fat. And Crassus means big or fat. And they had a dispute, they had an argument. And of course, they were so wealthy, they had their own little armies, you know. Instead of talking it out like gentlemen, they, they sent their armies to fight one another. And it just so happened that Lord Byron's army defeated Crassus' army. And it was his brother, so he didn't kill him. But what he did, Lord Byron took his brother Crassus back to his palace. And inside his palace, he had a room built for Crassus. This is a true story, by the way. He built a room in his castle for Crassus. And that room had an opening. There was no door. There was an opening there. And it had a window with no window. So there were openings to this room. The problem is, a normal-sized man could have gotten out of those openings. They could have escaped. But Crassus was so big, he couldn't fit through them. (laughs) And so, you know, even when people would accuse Lord Byron of being mean to his brother, he said, look, there's no door. He can leave any time he wants to. But see, Lord Byron was smart. And what he did every day for the next ten years is he would send his servants to Crassus with the best dainties, the best pastries, the best desserts. And guess what? Crashes stayed fat. And for 10 years, he was never able to leave that room because he couldn't get a victory over food. He just loved food too much. And the moral to the story is, we know our weaknesses, and so does Satan. And you know every day he's coming with temptation. He knows what we want. And if we would just be so sold out, God, help me. I know He's coming. God, give me victory over this thing. And when the thing comes, you just say no. And you know what Crassus would have found if he'd have done done that? He'd have found that every day, that flesh would have gotten a little smaller and a little smaller and a little smaller. And one day, he would walk free. That is exactly what it is like when we battle with temptation and sin this flesh. The problem is we don't depend on God enough And therefore, we never have the power and the wherewithal to say no. Ultimately, whichever side that you feed will win, talking about the spirit and the flesh. And the struggle against sin is real for the child of God. And if we're going to win, we must be secure in our salvation, stay focused on the Lord, and strike a balance between trusting and trying. What a blessing to live the victorious Christian life. I pray that's you this morning.